going a little bit beyond our stated agenda. Um, but I'm going to keep my comments here shorter, maybe, than the allotted time. Um, again, we are desiring this morning to look at biblical passages um, somewhat in detailed or even more broadly, like the Genesis passages. What, what, what has God said in His Word on this topic? And, um, and it's a challenge. It is, uh, you know, Bible study can be hard work. But um, as, as we see and understand the details of the, of the passages and the broad pictures of Scripture, uh, we strongly will hold a complementarian position. And that's just a, a word that is tagged to this. But there are roles that God has ordained within His creation. And that carries over to the home, and it carries over to the church. And as Paul or Peter or other writers wrote these things, predominantly Paul, uh, what did he mean when he wrote these things? They're hard sayings. I don't allow a woman to teach or to exert authority over man in the assembled gathering. What does that mean? A woman will be saved through childbearing. What does that mean? And we're, we've tried to wrestle with that uh, in, in a fresh and new way as elders and on the pastoral staff team and, and uh, presenting that to you uh, today. Um, the, I think actually interpreting these passages, yes, it's hard work, but it's really kind of the easier part. Um, words are words and phrases are phrases. And, and you, if you go into the Greek grammars and you read the different writings, and, and yes, um, I, I will say this, everything that has been presented so far, you can go and find books and articles that are going to say just the opposite. And they'll wrestle even with the passages and the phrases. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. We're right, they're wrong. No, but uh, you know, there are certain principles of hermeneutics. There are certain exegetical principles that you have to apply. And uh, the elders are confident that when we look at these things, read the vast other articles and things that are out there, there are, mis there are mistakes in the thinking and in the exegesis that leads to that more egalitarian position. Now, um, the hard part Again, I think the more easy part is the exegesis. The hard part is how do we apply it? How do we apply these things? Uh, Fellowship Bible Church has been around for 40 years. The complementary position, everything we're sharing with you is really unchanged in 40 years. This is how we have lived out. The question that is raised is, well, but how, how do we apply these things? And I think, uh, and we'll, we're going to share this in, in a few moments, I think that Fellowship Bible Church has made some mistakes in our application of these truths. And I think that has hurt women and hurt Fellowship Bible Church because we have undervalued and the role of women in Fellowship Bible Church. And for that, um, we elders take... And not just this current elder board, but even past elder boards. I'll speak for them, even though many of them are with the Lord. But uh, we apologize for that. 
and I think you've got to be real careful in the application of it. We speak when the Scriptures speak, and we are silent when the Scriptures are silent, and you can have this ministry, ministry creep that takes place like, well, this is what it says, and all of a sudden, the application of it goes to places that it should not go. And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Applying it is, is difficult. Now, there's one other set of passages that I'm going to just briefly touch on is 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. I think the First Timothy passage is the clearer passage. It addresses more definitively the role of women in the formal gathering of the church 1 Corinthians gives us a window into the life of one particular church, the Corinthian church. And though we may not understand conclusively some of the issues going on there, we do learn some general principles of how God intended the church to operate when they meet together. Um, so here's, the, here's the, the passage that um, we can stumble over oftentimes, verse 34 and 35 of chapter 14. Women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but to subject themselves, just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is, and this is a very strong term, improper or disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Let us cut that, those verses out of the Bible and throw them away, because my goodness, those are embarrassing verses in our modern-day culture. And that's what has been done in the last 56 years in certain segments but we cannot cut those out of the Bible. We just read them. They're there in the Bible. The question is, what do they mean? Now, that little last phrase, in the church, uh, we have to understand that little prepositional phrase, in the church. What is Paul saying? Now, if you go back to chapter 11, verse 17, Paul begins to write the Corinthian church instructions regarding their assembled meetings. So verse 17 talks about, um, I do not praise you because you come together, not for better, but for worse. Or verse 18 says, when you come together. Verse 20, therefore, when you meet together. Or verse 33, when you come together to eat. Or into chapter 14, verse 19, it says, in the church... Or verse 23, therefore, if the whole church assembles together, or when you assemble, verse 26 and verse 28, in the church, so clearly starting in verse 17 through chapter 14, verse 35, there's instructions that have to do with activities that take place when the local church formally assembles together, as Don brought, uh, just brought out when they assemble to, to partake of the Lord's table, to participate in public instruction and worship. When you assemble, there's something high and holy about the assembling of the saints together. And by the way, let me just put my pastoral hat on for just a second. This is why it is so very important that we meet together on the Lord's day. Not just take two classes up in the learning center and never participate in the assembled gathering. Not saying, uh, we've got company coming at noon. I think I need to stay home and cook and miss the assembling of the, of the body together. 
not doing what is so generally taking place today in evangelical Christendom, where the average believer is 1.67 times a month coming to the assembled gathering. Now, if you got a fever and are coughing in this day of pandemic, and even if we're not in a pandemic, for Pete's sake, stay home. But I don't know of many times that people have a proper excuse not to assemble together. God takes very highly the assembling of the saints together. And he's given instruction that starts in verse 17 of chapter 11 through chapter 14, verse 35, of what is to take place in the assembling together. Now, according to, again, verse 14, uh, uh, chapter 14, 34 to th uh, 45, uh, there was this prohibition of speaking. What's involved in speaking? Well, verse 26 says, uh, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, some has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, just let all things be done for edification. It seems that Paul is focusing on revelatory or instructional communication within the assembly. And he instructs that women were to keep silent in the assembled gathered in those specific areas. Paul delineates specifically in verse 27, speaking in tongues. In verse 27, um, therefore, whoever eats, no, verse uh, 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be two or more, at most three, and then with an interpreter. If you speak, underline that word, speak in a tongue, he must, um, but if there's no interpreter, verse 28, he must keep silent and let him speak to himself and to God. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. And then he jumps, jumped down to verse 34. He says, women are to keep silent in the church. They are not permitted to speak. So apparently when the church gathered for worship, women were not allowed to participate in the conveying of God's revealed truth via the teaching, the speaking in tongues, prophetic utterances. It's commonly held, though, that in the Corinthian church, that after a prophet spoke, others would critique or even argue with what had been spoken. And some hold, therefore, that what is also being prohibited is women speaking out in this passing judgment upon the prophets, it says in verse 29. However, that little phrase, let others pass judgment, does not necessarily mean speaking out in some evaluative or judgmental way. All Paul is saying is that when the Corinthians, that the Corinthians needed to be discerning regarding who was claiming to speak revelatory information from God or being a spokesman for God in prophesying. Remember, in the early church, it didn't have the completed canon. The, the, the word wasn't compiled. It wasn't completed yet. God was giving revelatory information, and that had to be discerned. What, does, is, that, is, is this person of character? Is this right? And there had to be a, a, some type of a, a critiquing of that. And so that was going on in the church. And some would say that all Paul is limiting in terms of women speaking is passing that judgment in that revelatory time of the prophets speaking. But the broader context is talking about speaking in multiple ways. 
It is commonly um, the conclusion then that the FBC elders have drawn is that the Apostle Paul was prohibiting women from speaking revelatory truth when the church was formally assembled for worship and instruction, and that the communicating of revealed truth from God was to be presented by the men. Women were to keep silent in that particular area, and in fact, verse 35 says that it is improper or disgraceful for women to speak in this way. Now, that coincides with what Paul instructed in 1 Timothy as well. Now, notice also that Paul ties this instruction to the law. It says, just as the law also said. Paul is basing his instruction not on something unique to the Corinthian church, but on the timeless principles ordained by God of the proper roles of men and women in creation orders found in the Pentateuch and especially Genesis, those things that John Morrison has laid out for us. In other words, the solution to this problem in the Corinthian church was a timeless truth that was grounded in the Old Testament. And again, that's exactly what Paul does in 1 Timothy, as John Morrison, uh, as Don Den Hartog has just laid out. But this seems to potentially contradict what Paul had written in chapter 11 earlier, when he gives instructions about women praying and prophesying, where he says in verse 5, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying and prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. It's like, well, wait a minute, clearly women can pray and prophesy. Paul is just instructing them here to do it properly. Seems like an, a, a contradiction. Women are to keep silent, but here it says they can pray and prophesy. The apparent contradiction between this passage in chapter 14, 34, and 35 is resolved by understanding the distinction between the different settings of the two passages. And as already noted, Paul's instruction about the formal assembly meetings of the church, it begins in verse 17. That's when he starts using the phrases, when you gather in the assembly. Those phrases aren't used earlier. What Paul is addressing prior to that is more general instructions regarding how the church should function. So let's back up into the context. Go back to uh, chapter 10, verse 31. Let's pick that up. Chapter 10, verse 31. What is Paul saying? Well, he says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. I think here he's talking about eternal salvation. Um, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. God's glory is what should be foremost in the minds of believers. And he says, God is glorified when you do not seek your own profit, but you seek the profit of others. And then Paul begins in chapter 11, verse 1, and he says, So be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. Christ did not seek his own profit. He came and he gave his life for the benefit of others. He said in, chapter, in, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, I've, I've glorified you, Father. My, I, I have finished the, my, my, my role here, and it was to glorify you. And Paul says, now imitate me as I have also imitated Christ. Paul's life was a testimony of that Christ-like attitude of caring for the benefit of others so that they may be saved and living a life that glorifies God. Now, these instructions 
go beyond just when the church is gathered for worship. In fact, in verse 27 of chapter 10, Paul is talking about how we are to behave when we're invited to an unbeliever's home and we're offered meat to eat that has been sacrificed to idols. That's outside the assembly gathering. Whatever you do in word or in deed, even if you're in someone's home and they're rank pagans and they're just offering you something to eat that is just sacrificed to idols, eat it. Don't worry about that. Honor God. Think of their benefit as they're serving that to you. And just maybe what you say to them will lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 11, Paul addresses some concerns that he has with believers in Corinth who are violating the principles that he had just stated. That is, seeking the benefit of others and glorifying God. The issues involve the proper God-ordained roles again. That's verse 3. He says, now I praise you, verse 2, because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions as I've delivered them to you. But, verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Issues were involving God-ordained roles and the proper behavior, specifically for women in fulfilling those roles. Apparently, the conduct of some women was bringing shame on their husbands and discrediting the God-given headship role. And so he goes on in verse 3 through 9. Uh, again, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, well, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. And for man, um, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for man's sake. Oh, there we go. There's some of those verses I just soon like to cut out and burn but they're there, <laughs> and we don't have the right to cut them out or ignore them. They're there, but we have a right and an obligation to interpret them properly. When women were obviously, women were obviously praying and prophesying, Paul wanted to make sure they were doing it with a proper heart attitude. However, starting in chapter 11, verse 17, Paul begins to focus on proper order now within the gathered church services, based on his instructions in chapter 14. Women were not allowed to speak prophetic utterances when the church had assembled together, as we've already noted. Chapter 14, however, says nothing about women not praying in worship gatherings, or does 1 Timothy 2. Men are specifically called upon to pray in 1 Timothy 2.8. It doesn't say women can't pray in the worship gatherings, and that could be viewed as an argument from silent. But here's the bottom line conclusion. How can the Corinthian women bring an appropriate sense of honor to their husbands? Now, obviously, we're talking about married women, and that's what Paul seemed to have a concern about, by having their heads covered when they prayed and prophesied in public. And this would have been very important in that first century Corinthian context. This simple act of submission and humility reflects the goodness of God's design in the creation order, keeps glory moving away from oneself, and in so doing, not only is the husband honored, but more importantly, God is honored and glorified. The purpose today is not to go into the details of this passage and the head coverings and all, the, all that's involved with that. It's just this general principle of 
we gather, and when we gather, there are certain instructions. These verses are prohibiting the exercise of doctrinal teaching of being the directional authority over the churches by women in the gathered assemblies. These verses are not based on some localized problem of the first century. They are based on how God has designed creation order, both in 1 Timothy and in these passages. He anchors these uh, directives to the Old Testament, to the law, to uh, creation order that's found in, in the book of Genesis. And when properly, I think, exegeted and interpreted, they teach that when the church is assembled for corporate worship, women are to take on a quiet and submissive role, while the function of doctrinal instruction and directional authority is reserved for men. Now again, everything we've just talked about, we can find articles and books that say exactly the opposite. It does make a challenge, but as elders of the church, we have to go and look at these passages and say, okay, let's remove all the emotion out of it, if all possible. Let's try to remove our biases out of it. What is the teaching here? And the bottom line is, when the body assembles together in this formal gathering assembly, there are restrictions, and Paul has laid that out. Why are there, why are there restrictions? Yes, it would be easy just to say, oh my God, that's just first century old archaic, or Paul was just a, a biased man, and we can just throw out what he says. Why are there restrictions? I'm not certain, other than there's something in the heart of God that is laid out in creation order. And as Mike Thomas has shared, there's something about the unseen realm that peers in and, it's, and um, is, is watching, is concerned about how men and women fulfill their roles within the home and I think within the church. And God is honored. And the bottom line is whatever we do in word or deed, we have to do it to glorify God. 